0: you thanks for tuning into the waiting list podcast i'm long long
1: i'm daniel and i'm jacqueline and we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches so sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors industry giants and share some good vibes welcome guys to the pod and before I properly start, we are recording this on the 11th of December. Actually, it's the 12th now, because I wrote this these questions on the 11th. And I'm on the last day of my quarantine since returning from my first Philips auction in Hong Kong. And I got to meet a fair few people that actually listened to this pod. Uh, it was great to see you guys engage with you. And thank you so much for your support and for all the nice things you guys said to me. Um, right, now that's over. I'd like to welcome our guests to the show today. As some of you may remember, a while ago, Longlong and I made a really ad hoc comment about how we couldn't get into Grand Seiko. Literally, it was like something ingrained with us, but we hit that topic and we, we both shared the same viewpoint, how um, we have tried so hard, so hard, more than any other brand to fall in love with Grand Seiko, but we just haven't found maybe it's the right entry or the right the right, um, you know, the point of understanding Grand Seiko, enough for me to want to go and purchase it and get over it, right? I hate to say it like that, but um, yeah, but we're very open to learn more. And this is that episode. And whilst our guest today is quick to mention that he is no expert, which is something that a lot of experts actually say, he uh, he was a name that was introduced to me and regularly, actually, uh introduced to me about okay if you discuss Grand Seiko this is the guy you should get it's Gerald Donovan so thank you for coming on to the show Gerald thank you very much for inviting me Daniel great so we're going to go straight into it um tell me how did your collecting watch collecting journey start and how did you get onto Grand Seiko
2: okay so um
1: I think I was a watch collector before I even understood
2: what watch collecting was. In that I, I was really into watches as a kid, like big time. I I was given my first watch I think before my second birthday. It was a Mickey Mouse watch that my uncle sent over from the US, and um, all, all through like my my childhood and my teenage years, I was always you know interested in watches. And interestingly, um, it was normally Seiko's, uh, Seiko's or Casio's because that was pretty much you know all, all you can afford as a kid, and. Throughout my teenage years, I was always like getting another watch at the end of the year and buying myself a Christmas present. Um, But I I didn't really understand what watch collecting was until much, much later. And it's probably in the late 90s. So when I'd be about in in my 30s, early 30s. Um, And I moved to Kuwait and I had a very good job in Kuwait that um, paid extremely well. And um to celebrate that I got on a plane and we go to Dubai every now and then because we had we had work down there as well and I bought a Patek Philippe Calatrava um 5026 in white gold um and that's that I suppose that's where my watch journey started um and from there that's when I you know you, you start the, the internet picks up and you start to get forums and you start to read more about watches um, and then I, I, I went through, I think a journey that a lot of people do is you just explore and you learn about different brands. I, I got a Panerai, um, I got a Zenith, um, um, oh, I can't remember the Zenith now, but I got a Zenith, um, and I ended up then doing quite a bit of travel and I, I traded in my Patek for a Rolex GMT. Um, so, you know, I, I I'd been through quite a few brands. And then later on, in the early two thousands, I moved to Dubai, um, and whilst I was in Dubai, I mean there was a really big watch scene in Dubai, as I'm sure, sure you know. Um, and there I got in, I, I discovered and started thinking about the Independent. So I actually ended up getting a an FP Jean Chronometra Optimum, and it, it was just just a fabulous watch for me. Like th- this was the ultimate watch. It was like almost like the watchmaker's watch, and I just fell in love with Jean. But the problem was, I wanted them all, and there is no way that I would ever be able to afford to buy. You know, maybe I could get another genre. I mean, I remember seeing a platinum brass resonance in Hong Kong for like thirty-five thousand US dollars. I mean, that you know, that's how far back this was. And I thought, fantastic watch, but I can't, I can't really justify spending that much again on a, on another watch. Um, so I thought, okay, I want. To, I, I realize I, I'm a collector. I want to collect watches. What can I afford to collect? Um, and that's when I just, I completely stumbled across Grand Seiko. And I thought, what an, what an interesting brand, because um, at the time, um, they weren't really widely distributed. This was back in 2015. Um, I think they've been in the States since 2010, but you know, nobody really knew much about Grand Seiko. So I started reading and I found, oh, they've got three different movements. They've got the spring drive, they got the course, and they got the mechanical. I'm going to buy one of each and add those to my collection, and then we'll just we'll see where we go from there. And I actually, my my first one was a spring drive that I actually bought on a trip to Hong Kong, um, what they call now the, the red flake, which is a really, really desirable, desirable reference. And whilst there, I also bought oh um online, I bought my first courts. Then I got back to Dubai and I started hunting for the mechanicals. And all of a sudden I realized, hang on, these mechanical Grand Seiko's the modern ones, they're really expensive. Like if you want one new, it's like sort of six, 000, seven thousand dollars. And I, I just went Googling and then I, I stumbled across Vintage Grand Seiko. I saw um Ben Clymer did a, an article back in 2013 in Hodinki, which I hadn't seen at the time, but it was about when he went to Japan and he went into a shop in Japan called Lemon mm. and very nearly bought a vintage Grand Seiko, but he got the he got the um uh, the, the FX translation wrong by by one one digit. So he thought it was a thousand dollars, but no, it's ten thousand. Um so I thought, well, maybe maybe rather than getting a, a new Grand Seiko mechanical model, I can get a vintage one. And I realized I could buy like four vintage pieces for the price of the mechanical. Um, and that's what I did. Um, and then I really started studying it. And there was almost no knowledge out there, certainly outside of Japan or in English, on, on the vintage period. So that's from 1960 through to about 1975. Um, and I just studied and studied and studied. And then I thought, right. There's 22 different movements. I'm going to I'm going to buy and have in my collection one from each of the different movements. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started down that track, and then something happened: is that I realised, oh, there's these two watches have exactly the same movement, but they are completely different aesthetically. You know, one solid gold with a hammered case and this incredible dial, and one's just like a really plain looking, you know, tight time and date dress watch um so the idea of having one of every movement that went out the window and then i just started buying um you know if if it's like oh i've not seen that one before it looks in pretty good condition i'll have that one um and i think i got up to about 110 of them
1: yeah so wow that's a lot to get into right there but i guess the first question is is you know, did you do all this research for the other brands that you kind of bought? Because it's kind of interesting. You went straight to Patek, you know, that's like almost the pinnacle for a lot of people. And then you kind of worked your way back. No offense. Right. To Zenith And uh, yeah, and uh, what was the other brand? Again, a Panerai, sorry, Panerai. Panerai fans. Um, yeah. So what? You know, did you do as much as research when you did like FB Jaune and, and stuff like that? Or is, is that your personality? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I think maybe my personality has developed into that. So certainly, you know,
2: not, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't a watch collector when I bought the Patek, I, I, you know, I did my research. I, I knew Patek, you know, that was the ultimate. I thought, okay, if I'm going to buy myself one nice watch and that watch is going to last me for the rest of my life, really, it needs to be a Patek Philippe. Yeah. If you're only going to buy one, I, I think that's pretty, you know, pretty fair. Um, and then that that was the intention at that point it's like well that's it that's my watch that's my watch for life um the the interesting thing about the 5026 is um it's actually a really small watch it's only 33 millimeters Mm -hmm. and I remember going to um you know the dealer the authorized dealer in Dubai Siddiqui and you know they had all these these laid out and I think I'm pretty certain it was very near or very close after they launched the annual calendar Mm um I I won't know the reference number. So I'm looking, I'm looking at these watches and I thought, the annual calendar, yeah, that's really nice. But I, I didn't like the fact that it had um hands for to indicate the the day and the month. I much prefer mm. calendars when the day and the month are in in apertures. Um and I could have bought one of those, but but I thought, no, I won't. I just like the the really simple, plain aesthetic, but it's one of these things like nobody would ever notice it on your wrist. I I never saw another person wearing a Patek Philippe for five years after buying that watch. And and I was I was looking everywhere. It's like someone must be wearing a patek philippe. Um and you know, so so for me that was the watch. And I didn't really have to go any further than that. I had my patek philippe. What more could what more could a man want? And then it turns out a man does want a little bit more than that. You know,
0: <laughs> um, when you look at someone's watch collections, let's say you could open the watch box. I kind of think of it like a puzzle. So you're trying to figure out this person. You're like, mm, I wonder what kind of person this guy is. Mm. And then, so following how you went from an ellipse, so super dressy watch, and then it became like a Rolex GMT. And the Zenith, you're, you're I think you're talking about was El, Premier, Premier, yeah, El Primero, right? Yeah. right? So I was like trying to think about this. And I was like, this, I just can't understand this person. So I thought, I think he's just being practical. So he went from, okay, I'm going to be in the office away. I like I'm going to actually be out of the office. And then then you went now this is too precious to like scratch. So then you just went Zenith to like, run around to take photos. That's that was my
2: theory um yeah all, almost I, I think the, the the timing's not quite that the, the photography didn't come till later but but yeah I mean the the Patek, it, it was always very very practical I mean I traded in my Patek for um the GMT it was almost a, a a straight swap um in London because at that point I was um doing a lot of international travel and I thought yeah GMT what you know perfect have a GMT on the wrist I mean I mean let's be honest if you're traveling from London to New York who can't like add five hours to the time or subtract five hours it's not that difficult is it but it's not it's nice just to have it on the watch and it's you know it's like a little complication and it's something to play with um so yeah it, it was very practical the, the zenith was simply because I wanted a I wanted a chronograph I thought chronographs are just so cool um and it was probably you know an influence from you know seeing somebody and talking to other people who had watches so oh yeah that's cool um but but yeah no back back then it was it was very much driven by pra- practicality I so said i i would never have considered myself a watch collector, yeah. um, even though I had, you know, over time, you know, I'm buying little buying watches every now and then, not not huge numbers. <laughs> but but I ca- I became a collector, I think, when I found something interesting to collect that I could afford, mm-hmm. because I couldn't afford, I could never afford to to collect Patek mm-hmm. or Rolex okay. or Jaune, even back when, you know, you, you could buy Jaunes at a discount at retail. I mean, I, I got a, a discount on my Optimum. Um, but, but it is it, it, the, the grand sake, you know, it started, oh, you know, it's interesting because they've got these three different, three core different movements that they do. Why do they do that? What? Why don't they just have mechanical? Why don't they just do courts? Um, and I, I, I guess from there and then when I got into the, um, you know, when I, when I realized I was considering buying one watch, but actually I can buy three or four even more interesting watches that date from around the time that I was born I was born in 67. um I think and then then when I, that's when I started studying and I think when you start really start studying it and you and you get that knowledge it's like ah then you realize there's lots of interesting watches here but bigger than that it's not about every individual watch I mean I I understand. I know I've, I've written about it, I've written loads and loads of articles um for myself mainly but obviously other people read them um but there is a really good story behind Grand Seiko in terms of how they started in 1960 and then Seiko killed Grand Seiko themselves because obviously Seiko, um, you know, they were the first in the market with a Courts Watch and then the Courts Explosion in the early 70s and that killed Grand Seiko mm-hmm. um, and so, so there's and, and then it goes beyond that because Grand Seiko effectively turned into Seiko Grand Courts for 15 years and then they revive Grand Seiko and then they revive the Grand Seiko mechanical movement, and then spring drive comes. And th- there's there's just this continue. It's actually a continual story from 1963 to through to today. Um, and I think if you understand the journey, then you can you you start to find a lot of the the watches along that journey mm. um, really really interesting. And you start to understand this is what the offer was at a certain point in time. Mm. Um, and it's just fascinating to go back back and relive that time through your collection, yeah
0: mm,
1: yeah. Would you say, so I'm listening to what you're saying and are you saying that really Grand Seiko was kind of where you start your watch collecting journey because basically it's affordable. Like you can actually yes, unless, afford to collect a lot of them. Yeah. That,
2: that was, I, I realized when I, when I got the Jean Optimum is when I really got into watches. Yeah. And that's when I got really interested in watches and chronometry and horology and, and all, you know, everything around it. Um, and as I said, it's like, oh, you know, there's there's all these different genres, and they're all really really cool. Um, so it's a terrible word to use, isn't it? But but they're all, you know, I, I find them all aesthetically very attractive, and they're very interesting in their own way. Um, but at the end of the day, they all tell the time. Um, and with Jean, you know, there's a story there. It's a recent story because the brand only started in '99, so you know they've been going for what 15 years or so. Then, um, but I but I couldn't afford it, so I became someone who wanted to collect watches, but I had to find watches that i could afford to collect um so affordability absolutely you know was was a very big Mm. driver um but then the the knowledge and the understanding of the brand and the brand history just took it to the took it to the next level
0: um based on what you're saying i'm hearing something different because i'm actually hearing it's more about how you define being a collector and it kind of sounds like the day that you decided Oh, I do fit that definition. Was kind of the day that you folk you felt like you started to focus on how you collected. So then the day that you decided, okay, I'm following a theme, then you thought, okay, I can deem myself a collector now.
2: I, I wouldn't say I would deem I, this is very much in height with you know looking back in hindsight. I wouldn't say I de- I would deem myself a collector. I never really I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe this a linguistic thing. It's not how I would have described it. Is mm-hmm. I, I I became aware mm. that um, I wanted to do more than just you know buy the odd watch every now and then. You know, and 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 freshen freshen up. You know what's on the wrist. And oh, I get bored with this one, so I'll sell that and oh, God, I'll trade it in and get another watch. It was like, I I, I again. It's going to be very cliched, but it but it's almost like um, the collection is is actually a story. Mm. So. It's almost like I'm. I wanted to. I wanted to be a. Even if it's just to myself, I wanted to tell stories through the watches, and because it's not just about the individual watches, it really is about the history of the brand.
1: Yeah. All right. Mm, Okay. So you told, you said in the so far that you know, uh, Grand Seiko had three movements that really interest you and a great story, but you could actually say. You know, a lot of brands have a great story, you know, because a brand is almost built on a story and maybe a flagship model. And, um, you know, most brands, you could argue, or you could say, they have quartz in their collection lineup and they have like um, mechanical movements. Obviously, Grand Seco have the spring drive, which is an extra kind of mixture of the two. Um, so that I'm just trying to understand it. Like yeah. because those those things that you say, you can actually find in a different round. What is it that yeah. Grand Seiko has that really piqued your interest?
2: Yeah. So uh, there's there's two things here. There's how, how it started was very much driven by affordability. So it's like, you know, if, if I if I I thought, okay, I'm 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 doing okay, I'm earning quite good money. I can afford to, you know, I can afford to build up a collection of 20 of these vintage Grand Seiko's and in building up that collection I I will learn about the brand um and and, it's just a slippery slope with with Seiko the more you understand the the the, the more slopes you fall off but um yes yes it is true for every brand but is it is it true for every brand that you could and, and this is going back then that you could say put together a three watch collection of the first watch that brand ever launched and then A watch that was six or seven years later the brand history remember is only 15 years yeah so six or seven years later is a uh watch which is still having massive influence on the way that they then the modern brand designs the watches now and then three or four years after that you can actually purchase you can actually add to your collection a watch which is I think increasingly recognized, and and this was drawn out in the Philips auction yesterday in New York by the auctioneer, um, as one of the most significant uh, chronometric watches in terms of, you know, the the, the accuracy of the watch. Because for me, it's all about, you know, a watch is there to tell time, primarily. Um, everything else is a bonus. Um, and it's really about, okay, how... Th- this is a watch that they went from in 10 years from something that met the standard, the accepted standard of the Swiss watches at that time to something that beat pretty much everything else on the planet in 10 years. And you can buy those back then you could buy representations of representatives of those three watches for about 10 to $12,000. Now you can't do that with Patek Philippe. You can't do that with Rolex. You can't do that with um, Longines possibly, Um, but but it's a the, the nice thing about uh, Grand Seiko, particularly vintage, and obviously my my focus is on vintage. But you know we can talk about the modern stuff as well and the, the full story. It, it's a really compact time frame. It's only fifteen years, um, and there's not it's not like if you you know what's the very first Rolex? How many people actually want to have an example of the first Rolex in their collection or the first Patek Philippe? Most people, I, I suspect, most Rolex collectors wouldn't even to tell you what the first rolex was the first rolex wrist, wristwatch and they're certainly not interested in it as a collection because the it, it's it's you know the aesthetics from back then whenever it was in the 1910s or 20s i don't know um you know that's that's not the aesthetic that is attractive to people at the moment it may well come back because obviously there's always lots of cycles with these things um but but i i i think it a, it's it's I I was born in 1967 so there's a nice okay some of it's before before when I was born but it's around my my time period um, it's something that I can look back on and you know you think the 60s and the 70s were two astonishing decades um, and I I don't yeah you you can you can come up with these stories for loads and loads and loads of brands but I don't think it's quite as tight and compact and as interesting a story as Grand Seiko over the course of 15 years. Mm.
1: Yeah. right so um I don't know a lot just full stop right yeah. but yeah. you yeah. say Grand Seiko and then you say 15 years what is this 15 year thing like? okay yes
2: sorry so Grand Seiko as a brand was born on in terms of the public being able to buy one was born on the 18th of December so this is quite nice time you are only six days off the 18th of December 1960 that's when the brand launched and brand but brand seiko to, as an offer sorry, go before, yep.
0: what do you mean before the public could buy so who was buying it before
2: no sorry um because they they started manufacturing them eight months previously oh, so because okay. <laughs> i've had a few of these yeah so so the actual launch of the brand it's like you imagine like a new watch brand is is launched mm-hmm. um and obviously it was under the seiko banner um but but the brand was launched in december 1960, mm-hmm. um and they basically just kept improving and improving and improving the, the watches over the course of the next decade. And then Quartz comes. And I, I have a complete collection of Seiko catalogues from the mid-60s through to the through to 1990, uh, which is when my interest sort of really starts to wane off. But the introduction of Quartz meant that it was very difficult. You imagine in 1971, 72, you say, okay, we probably have to get to 73. Um, you can spend 110,000 yen on the most accurate watch money can buy anywhere in the world which is going to be a grand seiko vfa uh, plus or minus two seconds a day back in 19 in the 1970s um or you can spend a third of the money and you can get a quartz watch which is going to be accurate to 15 seconds a month yeah so you know the whole push on grand seiko was was very much driven not solely driven but very much driven around how how the, the Grand Seiko standard, and then they did standards above that in terms of the accuracy of the watches. You want an accurate timepiece, you can put on your wrist a Grand Seiko is what you're going to get if you're in Japan, because they're only in Japan. Mm-hmm. But with the rise of courts by 1975, that there's no nobody's buying Grand Seiko. They're, they're cut from the catalogs completely. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the 1975 volume two catalogue, is like turn to page 47 or something, there's like half a dozen Grand Seiko's there. Five years previously, there would have been 30 Grand Seikos at the front of the catalogue. Mm. Um, and what's the first 40 pages of the catalogue? It's all quartz watches, because that's that's where the market went. Mm. So Grand Seiko died as a brand in 1975. Um, the official story is that Grand Seiko as a brand was resurrected in 1988, when they brought out a set of four quartz watches. Um, and then that started what people refer to as the modern era. So, the modern era, which is obviously still ongoing now, started in 1988. Um, there's a few key dates in that in terms of introduction and reintroduction of mechanical models, and then obviously spring drive, and then some complications. And then the big rebranding in 20, 2017 when they got rid of Seiko on the dial, it just says Grand Seiko. Mm. Um, but there's also a very interesting dead period between there from 75 to 88 where you say, well, there was no Grand Seiko, but actually there was, because you, you only see this if you look at the catalogs and you look at the offer of the whole Seiko brand, that Seiko, as ex- at the same time that they were taking out the mechanical Grand Seikos, they introduced Seiko Grand Courts. Now, all you have to do is flip those first two words around, it becomes Grand Seiko. <laughs> and that's what it is. <laughs> uh, it's, it's crazy, yeah? So imaginative. <laughs> yeah, I wrote. I, I wrote. I wrote a whole article on the whole history of of, the, of this period, which you know people think the vintage period, 1960 to 1975, and the modern period, 1988 to 2022, and, and going forward. Um, but in my mind, and and there's there's quite a few other collectors who, who concur on this. It's like no, all that happened is they they turned Grand Seiko into a court's offer because um, the, these were very much. Not quite the very top of the line, but th- these these were like the second tier. They began at the top of the line, but they became the second tier in, in the courts range for, for 10,
1: 12 years. Right. My hand up went quickly just yeah. a little <laughs> bit before you're there, Long. Um, I want to know why is it you like that first 15-year period as opposed to the later offering of like uh, the courts, Grand Seco Courts or Seco Grand Courts? and um and then you know what it is in the modern era okay um
2: well i like them all i mean i, I have a complete collection of seiko grand Courts, excluding the precious metal watches so i have 58 seiko grand Courts references which is every single steel and you know um gold cap or gold-plated reference so so my my interest doesn't stop at the end of Grand Seiko. I have loads of quartz watches as well. I the, the early 70s, um particularly in Japan, are really, really interesting in terms of what was going on. And the watches that um Seiko were coming out with, and the you know, Citizen and Casio as well. I mean, that's that's a whole other story. Um but but yeah, the the core is the mechanical. I mean, you you can't beat a mechanical watch for you know that 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 combination of you know micro engineering but also something that is aesthetic and it's it's the maybe it's not the same today but when i was growing up a court a, a watch was the only thing only piece of jewelry that a man could get away with wearing um and you know it, it's to large extent it's true you know it's how how men express ourselves or how we express ourselves to to, to ourself it may be if maybe other people as well I tend to wear watches just for me. I don't really care what anybody else thinks or sees, sees them. Um, but you can't you can't beat a mechanical watch, um, and so so that that's where the the focus was. And I said to myself, um, and I think there may even be a, a quote from me somewhere on this. I said, to myself, I will never buy anything other than a vintage Grand Seiko mechanical watch. My whole collection for the rest of eternity will only be focused around those watches." that lasted about two years Um, because then with Seiko, because I was doing so much, um, you know, looking at the history and like going through the catalogs and yeah, you go through the first 10 pages and it's all grand Seiko. And then what's on the next page, what's on the next page. And then you start discovering all these other amazing watches that Seiko were coming out with and then you start falling off these slippery slopes. Um, But yeah, mechanical watch has always been number one for me.
1: I've got a question. So, you know, you said like, uh site in 1960 for about a 15 year period, and then it started to obviously the market shifted to quartz yeah. and kind of Grand Seiko was phased out. So, is it that the later Grand Seikos, the 73, 74, 75, are rarer because the market shifted so there was less production? Are they, are they, what I'm trying to say is, are they more desirable? Yeah. I, I think, I think in terms of desirability,
2: there's, um, it's there there are some iconic references in in the over the vintage period. And obviously, you know, I you don't necessarily know at the time what an icon is. It's something that you know you need to wait 10, 20, 30 years, or whatever, and then you realize, oh yeah, that's yeah. an icon. Yeah. Um and I, I think it's fair to say that the the truly iconic pieces were pretty much all released um, prior to 72. Um there, there are some. So I'm talking about all the VFAs, the 44. Um, obviously, the the first Grand Seiko from the first three years. Um, the, the the later one. There's some really interesting pieces, and you know, even some of the some of the last couple of references that were introduced. Um, it, you, you can almost tell, like they said, okay, this is the swan song. Just go out and design whatever you want, and you know, a watch comes out. Um, there's one particular reference, and it has brigade brigade type, but it's Arabic numerals um all the way around apart from where the day date is at three um and the case and the dial it looks nothing like a grand seiko um grand seiko today talk about the grammar of design and you know how all grand seikos are designed around you know the specific way that they they design the cases and dials and facets etc and it's like in the vintage period that was true for about two years um and then you know you was so much more variety in the case design and the case case treatments in the in the in the vintage period than there is today which I think is may, maybe they'll start to branch out a little more, more. but yeah uh, sorry to get back to your question there, there's there's nothing there's watches which are relatively rare but when you say relatively rare maybe you know one one might turn up every month in you know on, on the secondary market now I'm I'm sure in you know again in terms of other brands it's like Hang on a moment. You know, twelve watches a year—that's all you will see of a reference. And I'm not even saying it's rare. It's like, yeah, that's that's how these things are. Um, there are there are vintage Grand Seikos where you might see one every three or four years if you're lucky, and if you're really lucky, you might see a really good condition one that you want. You say, yeah, that I want. You might see one of those every five to ten years. So th- those are the those are the you know they, they tend to be the VFAs. Or the platinum first, um, so you know they, they're they're much, very much of the '60s and very early '70s, rather than right at the end of the, the lifespan.
0: Okay, um, my question's more about finishing because obviously a lot of Grand Seiko collectors and Seiko collectors, they always go back to, "Wow, well, look at this value and the finishing I get." So, you know, with a lot of brands, um, let's use Frank Mueller as an example. I think it's fair to say the vintage pieces have better finishing or better design Mm -hmm. uh, compared to the modern pieces. So is this the thing with Grand Seiko and Seiko where the vintage pieces have better finishing compared to the modern ones?
2: You mentioned design and finishing. I think they're they're, two separate things.
0: Because I think the design is very subjective, right? Because some people do prefer a bigger and louder design. So yeah. let's focus okay, so let's just focus on finishing. Then. Focus on the
2: finishing. Yeah. Because yeah. because as you say, that's very objective. Yeah. So in a way that's quite a difficult difficult one to, to answer, although I can answer it. Um, because obviously these days when you go and you you go into your, your authorized dealer or or you look on online, all you're ever seeing is photographs of of new watches, watches that people have maybe owned for two or three years and they're babying and making sure they don't knock about and they don't get scratched and and yes the, the the finishing I mean if we're talking about case cases first of all the case finishing on modern Grand Seikos is, is is phenomenal as as is the finishing on the on the dials you know the indices and things I mean you, you're not going to get that level of finishing particularly if we look at the dial the dial furniture on a vintage Grand Seiko because the the tools just simply weren't available you're not going to find that level of finishing Okay. I when I was in Dubai, I was very fortunate. I was able to photograph lots and lots of different watches and some really, really top end watches. And and I I photograph. Um, I, I don't do sort of um, you know sort of style shots or anything. I photograph the watch. So the watch fills the whole frame. So everything's macro right, basically. Um, I photograph even you name a brand, I photographed it. Uh, oh, grand, modern Grand Seiko finishing is. The only brand that can hold a candle to them in terms of dial finishing is Grubel 4C.
0: Yeah, I was going to say. Nobody
2: else comes close, yeah. And so they can't, um, you're not going to get that level of finishing back in the 60s and 70s. However, one of the interesting things about modern Grand Seiko is, um, you know, everyone goes on about the the cases and how sharp the cases are and the polishing on the cases. If you can find a new old stock Grand Seiko from the sixties, particularly something like a forty-four Grand Seiko, which they they still reinterpret that case today. Those cases are sharper than the modern ones. The the, the actual facets, the edges on the on the, on the on the case are actually sharper. Um, but you 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 just don't see them. You know, most most of the watches that you see from that period, they you know they, they were they were top end but they were never like you know super super expensive and so people wore them people have been wearing them for 50 60 years and you know they are going to get knocked about they're going to get um you know polished with a cloth and maybe somebody sends them off and somebody puts them on a machine to polish them and ruins them um so yeah the the the, the finishing is always finishing is always going to be better on the modern pieces except for the fact that i think the there is a level of detail finishing when you really get into the tiny tiny details where the vintage pieces are do, do have much much sharper edges to to the to the cases mm. why i don't know i don't know why they can't reproduce that today they once told me on a trip to japan yeah. um it, it was actually one of the sales guys in one and i won't say where it was but in one of the shops that sells Grand modern grand seiko so they deliberately don't make them as sharp as the vintage pieces because they're worried about them actually cutting into shirt cuffs and ruining people's shirt cuffs. Um, now I don't know whether that's true or not. It's, it'll be it's, it's a nice story to tell, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the vintage pieces is a, is a different is a different attraction, I think.
1: Yeah. All right. Um, but I was just as you are talking about this answer, right? I was thinking, but in the seventies or, or so in the sixties, right? was the finishing mainly done by hand With most of it is it still done by hand on the modern stuff or is it mainly machine
2: well uh, it's done by hand my understanding
1: is is back then as now
2: um because grand seiko make great noise about the fact they still use the same machines to actually finish the watches that they did back then these zaratsu well they're not zaratsu is the the japanese um, interpretation of the german uh, machine manufacturer I, I can't remember what the actual name of the thing is but it sounds like Zoratsu when he's when you read it in Japanese or as a Japanese person um so uh, as Philip said in the auction yesterday they had a 57 uh, Grand Seiko from I think 60 65 um and they said, you know th- this watch was finished with the Zoratsu um techniques yes. the same techniques that they use today so um I think the what probably has changed and that people don't talk about so much is the actual steel the the quality of the steel itself I, I think these days there's better quality steel um than they had they would have had to work within the in the vintage period the the in, inter- one of the inter- one of the interesting things how many more <laughs> times I'm going to say that with the vintage pieces there are there a lot of the steel cases they're, they're they're just called stainless steel but there's a there's a handful of reference where they call the material HSS or hardened stainless steel and that age is way better than than the steel. So even if you see, you know, watches that have been worn, you know, f- for 50 years, as long as they've not been repolished, they still have the very, very sharp edges because they're made of that steel, which is just just much harder quality than the steel, the regular pieces were. So I suspect in the modern era, they, they have a, a harder, harder steel um, that they can use.
0: Um, speaking about steel, I read that you had a reference, a 3180, so a, a Grand Seiko steel piece. And then you were trying to figure out whether it was real, right? Because it was either a prototype or it was like a service piece, right? So did you hear back from them? So was it real?
2: Um no so so very very briefly there's um there's lots of there's lots of fake steel grand examples of the first grand Seiko and you know one 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 once every month or twice twice a month these these turn up in the auctions in Japan but they're easy to spot um but the there are a a handful and I say a handful I think it's four now that have surfaced where the dial and the handset and the movement is absolutely correct and The question is why are these things in steel cases and seiko if you ask grand seiko did you ever make a steel first they'll say no um the interesting thing is in speaking to people there's only two possibilities for these watches one they are originally the platinum watches where they've been taken out of the platinum case so they melt down the case for scrap metal value and then rather than throw it away they put it in a somebody made a steel case and they put it in the steel case or two they were demonstration pieces to show people back in the um, you know sixty one two and three. This is what a platinum piece is going to look like because supposedly the platinum pieces were not were never stopped. So you you went in, you learned about it, you placed an order, and a few months later you get your platinum piece for one hundred forty thousand yen rather than the twenty five thousand yen. Now, I was in Japan in October and I was chatting to the guy who who runs the second floor at Wacko, which has got a fantastic exhibition of um, Grand Seiko and telling the history. Now the Wacko store in Japan, they have had their own limited edition modern pieces for quite some time now. And they had an example of every single one of them laid out behind the counter. And I didn't realize at first, I didn't click what they were. And then I just saw one watch and I thought, hey, that can't possibly be what I think it is. And it's something that they only ever did five of in 2005. And then I realised, oh, my God, they got every single one, like all 26 or whatever it is, wacko pieces. And I said, can I have a look at that one? And the guy got it down because I've never, I've never seen this watch in the flesh. There's only five of them. Um, and I picked it up and I thought, ah, as soon as I picked it up, it's steel. It's not platinum. The original in two thousand and five was platinum. I said, "Oh, these are—they're they're all dummy watches. Every single one of them was the demo watches they used to show people what the um, Waco limited editions were like because they didn't have an actual—the actual watch all the time ready to to show somebody." Mm-hmm. And, and I said, "So hang on a moment. So, so all of the—you know the, here's an example of this watch, and it's in in a steel case." complete with the officer case back in steel but it was never sold as steel what happens if that watch turns up in 20 years time and someone puts a, a genuine movement in it because that's all it would take um and he said well if you ask Grand Seiko they will tell you that these steel demo watches do not exist so that's for watches that have been manufactured in the 2000s mm-hmm. where today Grand Seiko is saying no there is no example of this watch in steel and yet there it was in my hand so who knows? Um, one of the things that I've done is uh, is also on that trip is um, we I, I took it with me and, and with a, a very very good Japanese collector friend of mine um, we opened it up and we took a note of the the serial number of the movement and he has good friends who worked at Seiko in the started working at Seiko in the early seventies and he said he's going to see if they can find any record um, internal record because if you ask Seiko they can't tell you anything about any of their vintage pieces. But he thinks that maybe there may be a record of what watch, what case this movement number originally went into. Yeah. I think it's more likely that these were platinum pieces where the case has been removed. Um, there's just something about the steel case; these steel cases—they're just too tight. Mm-hmm. They just, you know, when you when you when you pop the the back off, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like it's a 60-year-old watch. Um, but hopefully, we'll get an answer at some point.
0: I like. As I'm hearing the story, I'm also like, did you have a translator? I don't remember Japanese people being able to speak English like
2: that. Well, this this guy, this guy who's who's in the Waco store, he he speaks very very good English. Right. Um, I had a great conversation with him. Um, actually, it's an, an an interesting thing in um when I started collecting Grand Seiko because obviously, the vintage pieces almost without except there are a few exceptions, but the vintage pieces are only ever sold in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's almost no English mar- marketing material about them. All the catalogues are in Japanese. Yeah. Um, obviously, pe- the only pe- pretty much the only people back in 2015, 2016 when I got into these, who were collecting these, apart from a handful, and I'm sure you could count them on the ha- on the fingers of one hand, were, were all in Japan. Mm-hmm. And as you say, a lot of Japanese don't speak English, um, and if you want to buy them. All the websites selling them were all in Japanese. Yeah. And something happened, something happened which is really interesting. I think it was about 2016, 2017, is Google Translate, um, which had been translating Japanese text for for quite some time. On, you know, you can take a photograph of something with Google in a different language and it will translate the photograph for you. It's got the, the character recognition. And it was around 2017, I think it was, when that started working for in Japanese. And that made a huge difference. Because, I mean, if you're in Japan and you you know you see something for sale, you can get the translation. Um, and also now, these days, the, the conversational translation is so good. You can just put your phone on the table and you speak in English and it turns it into Japanese and your friend speaks in Japanese and it turns it into English. So it's much, much easier now than it, than it was a few years ago. Very
1: interesting. Right, I, I just want to go back to two terms, right, just in mm-hmm. case our listeners don't know, which is, what is Waco? Oh sorry, two, yeah. what is VFA?
2: Okay. So uh Wacko, I'm not sure whether you pronounce it Wacko or Waco, but but I I say Wacko is a department store uh, owned by Seiko that Seiko have owned for many, many decades. I think going back to so the retailer. Pre- it's a retailer. Yeah. It's a department store uh, in Ginza on on the corner. It's a very, very famous um shop, if you like, department store. And um Se- Seiko have lots and lots and lots of different businesses. And um one of them is the fact they own this building and they own the department store that's in it. Um and they they sell. So you can walk into a Seiko-owned um boutique effectively, and you can buy you know Swiss watches. They represent a number of Swiss brands in there. Um, but also they'll have you know a Grand Seiko for sale and they'll have you know other other things other than watches as well you know they'll have some homeware and they have bags and and you know some clothing i think so that's wacko. um vfa is vfa stands in the mechanical era stands for very fine adjusted and so there's a there's about 10 or 11 references all released from 69 through to 72 um where the movements were adjusted by the very very best well well first the the movements were all upgraded in terms of the the quality of the you know the the pieces that go into them the design of the movements and then they they're actually regulated by the best you know the top end watchmakers um, at Grand Seiko um and you know they they're the pinnacle they're the pin, pinnacle of of any vintage Grand Seiko collection is you know really you want to have a VFA in there one of the interesting things about vfas is that as i said they were in production in 60 well late 68 on sale late 69 through on sale through to the end of the um grand, grand seiko vintage period in 75. um there, there's no records as to how many watches were made you can work you can work it out you can get some some approximations for a lot of seiko pieces the only say pretty much the only vintage seiko piece where we know exactly how many were made is the seiko astronomical observatory chronometer which was one level above grand seiko um and, th- and that we, that we know exactly how many there are but nobody knows exactly how many vfas were made but i did read once in in a japan one of the old japanese magazines from the period that they could produce about three a day of these vfas so if you think over over the course, and they weren't obviously manufactured all the time, but maybe there's 3,000 or something between, I think three to 5,000 of these were made um, across the 10 10 or 11 different references. In the modern era, Grand Seiko have produced a VFA reference. They made 20 of them. So from 1988, or say 1998, when mechanical Grand Seiko restarted through to today, Grand Seiko have made a total of 20 pieces of the VFA, cased in platinum, um, launched, I think it was 2017. And, you know, very, very, very expensive. I think they were $60,000 retail or something like that. Um, and yet back in the vintage era, they they managed to make, you know, something of the order of 3,000. I, I just find that really interesting. You think how different... Yeah. watch manufacturing must have been back then that they could produce that many watches of that caliber um, and today it's just not economical for them to do it at all
0: I, The thing I find really weird about watch brands is they're so good at like counting some things, say like watch parts, they can tell you like okay this watch has like 250 parts but you can't yeah. tell me how many pieces leave your factory, like it's either a marketing <laughs> thing or yeah they just really well, lost how
2: <laughs> I, I think i think it's like a record but part of it probably is is you know it's just like that's that's internal company knowledge that they think has value to the company and they wouldn't want their competitors to know how many they're producing what well, one of the interesting things about grand Seiko today and it it's bizarre it's almost bizarre to me because i think people have a very narrow field of view in terms of how far they look into the future so many people complain about the number of limited editions that grand Seiko do yeah um, they they are, there are literally, if you go back over the last, um, was it 20? So, no, I'm terrible at maths. Back crossing centuries, I can never do maths. Um, if you go back over the last 34 years since 88, um, um, Seiko, I don't know, they've probably done 200, 300 limited editions um, out of a total of about 900 references. Actually, no, it's probably more than that. It's maybe even half of them are limited editions. But the great thing about limited editions, is they tell you how many they made. Yeah. So something like um, again, sold at Philips yesterday, SBGZ double zero one, which is a fantastic platinum cased watch where the platinum where the actual case has been hand hammered and it's got this, this incredible hand textured dial. Um, you know, and I'm trying to think, is it 20 or 30? You, you know there's only 30 of those. Yeah. And in 20, 20 years, 20, 20, 20. you'll know there's only they only ever made 30 of those. So at least with all the limited editions now where you know people say, oh, there's too many limited editions and it's not fair, there's only 200 of those and they're only available in America or whatever it is. It's like, no, that's fantastic because it means for people who are collecting these and I can assure you, people will be collecting these in 20, 30, 40 years time, they will be able to look back and say, we know there's only 30 of that reference or we know there's only five of that reference, which I think is really important. I'd, I'd love to know. How many how many were made of every reference and you know i've done some estimates but it's very hard to get concrete facts
0: um i suddenly remembered something a bit off tangent but um you stayed in the middle east for a while right uh, yep. and someone was telling me recently because of the muslim like the muslim people generally can't wear gold it's uh, whether it's white gold rose gold yellow gold so a lot of pieces, a lot of brands make platinum pieces for them for that region. So, yep. so one is this true, and then two, um, did you see a lot of people getting into Grand Seiko there?
2: Um, so on the first question, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on on Islam um, and you know the, the the culture. I mean, obviously, I was embedded in the culture mm-hmm. for quite some time, but but in the Middle East, you know, as, a, as an expat, you 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 tend you tend to sort of live live amongst your own community. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you don't see you don't see many when, when I'm when I'm going for drinks in a bar in an evening. You don't see many Muslims there. You do see some, but yeah. um, you don't see many. Um, so I'm not an expert in the culture, but it, but yeah, I, I have I have heard and, and you know people have said to me that yeah, it something in, within Islam. It's not good to sort of ostentatiously display wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's like something that. I don't think there's anything wrong. I don't think there's any. It's not considered wrong to be, you know, wealthy, mm-hmm. um, or even to to you know want to accrue wealth. But but it's it's not it's not a particularly showy culture. Certainly historically, you know, the the clothing is is very, um, you know, very well to the outsider's view, it's very plain. You know, whether you're talking about what the men or the or the or the ladies wear, um, and a lot a lot of the you know a lot of the wealth is actually discreetly worn or discreetly, you know, owned. Now, yeah, there's a younger generation now and Dubai, you know, is just full of the flashy cars and people are quite perfectly happy to wear the watches. But I think, yeah, historically, I've, it is true that, you know, the, the most obvious display of wealth was a massive, you know, gold wristwatch or gold necklace, gold chains, whatever. Um, and and so I, I think both both steel and um platinum so some piece i'm sure some of the original pieces you know watches were made in steel um particularly for the middle east market and and white metal whether whether it's white you know white precious metal whether it's gold or, or platinum um and sorry i forgot the second question
0: uh second question was uh whether you whether there was anyone that was into grand seiko oh yeah. yeah
2: um, no, not not when I when I was when I was collecting it, I didn't know a single other collector of Grand Seiko in in the Middle East at that at that time. One one of one of the interesting things is you know just how the interest in the vintage pieces has really exploded over the last sort of two three years, um, and you know now there are Grand Seiko collectors all over the world um, collecting the modern pieces. I think I think it's fair to say there's probably more people collecting the modern pieces than the the vintage ones um if you look at the photo reports from for example the GS9 which is the the club for people who buy Grand Seiko's in the US in the US they had a, a a big get together recently and yeah there's there's a there's a good few people who turn up with vintage pieces on their wrist but but there's lots of people still you know who are collecting um, and putting together big collections of the of the modern pieces but back yeah back back then I mean I, there there was, a, there was a there was a there's a Seiko collector in Stefan in um Sweden who was just ahead of everybody in terms of collecting Grand Seiko and the early course pieces um and a couple of people in the states that I knew um Eric Eric Strickland on the west coast of the states he's a big 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 Seiko guy and he was into he got into Grand Seiko around the same time that I did, I think. Maybe maybe it was a year ahead of me. Um, but in the Middle East, there weren't really any, and there are very, very few outside Japan. The Thing is, there was just no knowledge of it then. You couldn't find anything out about Grand Seiko back then. You, I, 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 I basically had to create, um, you know, I created a website and just shared as much information as I possibly could just to get the awareness out, and so people could understand, you know, what what there was
1: um yeah i'm just gonna go on a different tangent here but like let's say i'm interested in grand seiko which i kind yep. of am right yep. but there's so many as you say so many references right mm-hmm. I, I let me give you like a kind of profile of what i i like yeah i like i like rarity right yeah. i like uh that's quite high um so and I, i'm you know i'm it sounds like from what you're saying i'd like yeah okay a vintage watch rather than the modern stuff okay. um so yeah. and then i have to say the vfa sounds kind of interesting because it kind of sounds like the top like yeah. quality uh watchmaking right in terms yeah. of uh accuracy i don't know if the finishing match is there but i it, I, I assume so um so can you name me like i don't know to, like a couple of references i need to look into um if i was like yeah that kind of buyer
2: i can do but to do that i'd have to ask you the rude question
1: which is what's your budget okay what what do these things go for then like (laughs) yeah from what what price to what price you know i I have no idea
2: okay so you you could buy um a a well-worn but still very reliable you know the, these these watches have been going for the last 50 60 years um service them every now and then look after them they'll be going for another 50 60 years without any trouble whatsoever um so you, you could buy a well-worn quote-unquote normal regular but interesting vintage grand seiko for a thousand dollars yeah not a vfa thousand
1: us dollars this is 1,
2: can get you started with a nice Grand vintage Grand Seiko. Perfectly acceptable. Yes. It's going to be
1: great on your wrist. Oh, condition is important to me as well. I don't yeah, like
2: condition.
1: Yeah, I don't like uh I like yeah, great condition. Yeah. You're
2: not you're not gonna get a a new old stock or what Japanese call dead stock. So you're not gonna get something that's never been worn before for a thousand dollars. none of the references. But you, you you can get a very nice um and when I say unpolished, I what well, I don't mean unpolished, I mean un, un non-restored, non-refinished case. Yeah um that still got all its original sharp angles it's going to have some scratches on it maybe but yeah you can get a very nice watch for $1000 uh, as as a starting point where the top end is is that a VFA still no 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 that's not VFA <laughs> $1000 okay, is not going to get you a, a, a VFA v- VFA well the VFA at Phillips yesterday went for $30,000 and that that was probably that's one of the most common um of the VFAs the same reference they actually sold in Geneva back in May 2021 20, so 18 months ago they sold and i think it was like 40 or 45000 and that that's the baseline VFA um now obviously that's Phillips dollars a vintage that, VFA that's a- from France, okay. though. yeah that's from philips if if you philips or philips their prices are what they are um you you could get a, a nice VFA for ten to fifteen thousand dollars. You can get a nice, a nice one of the more common ones. Or if you want one of the rarest ones in really, really tip top condition, um, I gotta be honest with you, these days you're probably looking into six figures US. So th- that's the six other figures, thing about. Six figures
1: US. Yep. Whoa. Yep. Um, and, and and six figures us who's buying these are they is it still the japanese appreciating their own wares or is it like people you know that uh, i don't know from america I, I, or I, where, where yeah like who's interest, who, who's yeah. buying these?
2: i, I uh, very very few people because very very few examples at that level exist you know the, the, these are the watches where you might see one really good one a decade yeah. so if you want the absolute best quality piece then basically whoever's got that absolute best quality piece they can hold out for as long as they want as much as yeah. they want because they know yeah. you're not going to find another one and so that there, there are collectors out there and there's an increasing number of them who you know because i'm, I'm known for you know quite a few watches go through my hands and um I've been doing this longer than most people so not most people in Japan there's dealers in Japan who have been doing this for decades but um so I've seen a lot I've seen I I see every every vintage Grand Seiko that comes to the market I see it um and I've also looked into you know all the auctions before I started collecting which is you know thousands and thousands of watches um so I, I I know what's out there I know how rare these pieces come up and I know there are people out there now who only want the absolute top best quality that there is, and they won't buy something that's like a minus. They, they only want it if they if it's absolutely has never been polished. Um, the dial is spotless. Comes with box and papers, which is very rare for vintage Grand Seikos prior to the seventies, um, because then it's generic boxes and generic certificates. But it's extremely rare to have the original box and papers where the certificate actually states the movement number or the case number on on the certificate um, again philips had one yesterday um so yeah I and mean, there's the sky's the limit for for these and and i i i think you know at the moment there's there's not a massive market there's there's not that there are some there are some very serious watch collectors who have very very serious pieces in their collection who are buying or who have bought um vintage Grand Seiko I there's a collector that I know in the UK who who has some of the most astonishing watches you can imagine and he has a complete collection of the VFAs he has every single one so there are people out there who, who are doing this and I I, I think when, when you're talking about watches where the really top top quality ones only turn up once a decade or once every mm-hmm. five years um all it takes is two more people like him to turn up and sky's mm-hmm. the limit
1: right so what about you like you've got quite a few of these pieces now what are you Mm. what are you looking for like is there like this holy grail that you're looking for
2: i don't want to talk about my holy grail today (laughs) Um, i will now i'll come back to my holy grail i will come back to my holy grail which is not actually a grand seiko but it sort of is so um what I'm doing now is I I started, when I started off and it's like, okay, I've got to buy all the Grand Seiko. So I I want to try to get every, I know I wasn't get everyone because there's 140, no 152 of them. Um, But I I want to get as many as I can. Um, And then, you know, I I had to start selling them every now and then to to pay the rent. Um, And what my focus now is very much on getting the absolute best quality pieces that I can into my collection and letting go the still very very nice watches. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not going to offer anybody a piece of junk. Um, but but letting go of some of the 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 less high quality pieces that I've maybe acquired over the last few years um, in order to fund those really really top quality pieces. Um, so that that's sort of where where I am at the moment. I've I've got I've got some very nice watches. Very nice vintage, vintage Grand Seikos um i got ones that i i fully intend never to sell um but never say never you never know everything has a price eventually um my grail uh okay so uh, there is a um there is one vfa above all the other vfas um and that is what is commonly known as the imperial vfa Now, it's not actually a Grand Seiko. It doesn't say Grand Seiko anywhere on it. It only says Seiko. And these watches were given to very high-ranking diplomats by Emperor Hirohito on his European tour in 1971. Um, These are basically mythical watches. And up until relatively recently, the only example that was known well actually nobody knows where it is was there's there's a set of three photographs of this watch one at the front of it one at the back of it and one with the case back off um that had been going around flying around the internet for the last 15 years or so and then um a few years ago two or three years ago i forget it's written up on sjx um a gentleman in the uk collector in the uk um, saw one advertised on Gumtree which is like one of the <laughs> online classified. you know Gumtree no. yeah
0: God. saw it
2: advertised on Gumtree and phoned <laughs> the guy up jumped in his car and went up and bought it off him I've no idea how much he paid for it I doubt it was a huge amount of money um and it was one of these imperial VFAs and there's a fantastic story on SJX um about this
1: looking at it now yeah yeah
2: it's um oh. so so that that was that was amazing and it's like okay that is my grail that piece that piece i would I, I wouldn't i wouldn't trade everything that because what i have is is worth more than one of those but i'd be perfectly happy with that one watch and i would sell everything else and i would never buy another watch in my life and i can say that without any hesitation and i know 100% that i could do that that's the grail okay. for me that's the level of grail then Two years ago, on a German forum, a gentleman posted photographs of another one. And this one, and he explained what happened, was given to his father, who was a top German diplomat. He used to be the German ambassador to Moscow. Um, and he he it was his role to make sure that Emperor Hirohito's visit to Germany uh, went smoothly. And, you know, he was looking after him, etc., etc., etc and um his father was given this watch um and it was just a seiko nobody ever thought anything of it um until 40 years later the guy puts it on a post on um on this german forum i i see it and i get in contact with the guy and we end up having a very long conversation about it and he tried to put it into auction with one of the auction houses um and they I went not phillips one of the other ones they came back to him and they said, um, oh yeah, we recommend, you know, putting it out at you know, an estimate of six thousand dollars and maybe it might do a little bit more than that. Um he told them where to stick that because he'd been talking to me about it. Um and in the end, I ended up um because I made him an offer for it, which was basically every last penny that I had at that time. Um but the collector that I mentioned in the UK, I was speaking to him about it. He said, Look, if he's not willing to sell it to you. Can I speak to him? And I ended up getting these two gentlemen to speak to one another. And my collector friend in the UK bought it um, for, for quite a considerable sum of money. And there I thought the story would end until last week when a collector on the West Coast of the US got in contact with one of my friends and said, hey, I've just bought this watch. Do you know if it's genuine or not? And my friend then shared the photographs with me And because there's a lot of fake ones of these going around, I have a Substack newsletter that I send out every Friday that talks about the auctions in, in uh, Japan. And every month there's a fake one of these turns up now. And my friend thought it's bound to be fake one. I looked at it. No, straight away. That's real. I thought, oh my God, another one has turned up. And um, literally literally last week, um, I don't know when they got it. They, They came out of a London antiques dealer um and they they just posted the watch on their Instagram account um a couple of days ago um and it's like just gutted. <laughs> it's like I've missed another one um
1: nobody knows why can't how you go get it why can't you go and get it
2: no it's no, it's in it's in the collection now so I I ne- I, I, I I haven't found found it to be online this particular watch I don't know where it was listed I don't know whether it was even listed online whether the, the the collector was in london and wanted into an antique shop and found it i'm sure the full story will come out um it's an absolutely remarkable watch um but yeah that's my grail so i've missed another one
0: such a good
1: story. oh that, that that's got me that has really got me i'll tell you like the way you told that and the way like the story and, oh, and how mythical it is like
2: now the the good thing is my friend in the UK the collector friend in the UK who has all the VFAs he's he has said to me Gerald at some point maybe we will find a way that this watch comes to you um I don't know when that at some point maybe he maybe he will look to sell it at some point in the future um maybe I'll have to sell a kidney or three um to try to try to purchase them off it but he he's he, he said if he ever if he ever sells it that I will have first refusal so Aww. maybe maybe one day maybe one that day. is fantastic yeah I, I think I know I should I'm not going to say this I shouldn't say this publicly
1: well we can cut it out
2: <laughs> okay yeah uh, let me see um I will go on record as saying that I believe that one of these Imperial VFAs will be the first seven-figure vintage Seiko at some point in the future don't know when but that will be a million dollar watch one day like okay i want one now Look, you see the historical <laughs> the historical impact is it, it's not it's such a plain looking yeah i've seen watch, it yeah right?
1: looks you could you would if you didn't tell me i would have just said it's a say, like, yeah. the same like the knowledge right required, past yeah yeah but but this is
2: the watch the beautiful Emperor flower Harko, though. though yeah it's the it's the chrysanthemum it's the the chrysanthemum of the of the imperial household in japan Emperor Hirohito's visit to Europe in 1971 was the first ever visit by an emperor outside Japan. No emperor of Japan had ever left Japan while being emperor. Uh, Hirohito, when he was crown prince, I forget what the correct term is, but he visited Europe in the 20s, I believe. But it was the first ever visit by a serving emperor outside of Japan. And... He chooses to gift the most senior diplomats in each country. I believe we believe he had official visits to the UK, Belgium, and Germany. I think, and he also visited some other countries, but but not not as of not not in an official capacity so much. Um, and you know this this is the watch that he he presented to to the top diplomats. And the guy in Germany, his father. He, he, he said, you know, years later, he, he said his father had told him, he said, um, you know, why, why am I interested in this this steel Seiko? He said, you know, the the when he was in Turkey, he was the, the ambassador in Turkey at some point, and he was given a gold Swiss watch or whatever. And that was far more important to him, you know, because it's gold and it's Swiss. And he said, it's just a cheap steel Japanese watch. It's like, now, hang on a moment. Japanese emperor gave this to you. It's, it's going to be something pretty important um so so it's got i I think it's got it's got huge cultural significance huge historical significance um what i'd love to see is maybe one day one will turn up with the box because what's the box like that this was put in seiko really interesting that the the certainly in the vintage period i think even even today as well it's it's almost as if the the more significant the watch the less understated the boxes. So the, if, if you see the box the boxes that they have for the first Grand Seiko and then the second Grand Seiko and, and then the the early 62s and the 44s, sorry boring with numbers um they're actually quite flamboyant in terms of you know the outer box and it's got lots of swirly patterns on it and you open up the box and it's got all this embroidered stuff on the inside and they're, they're fabulous things. Um, but then you get a VFA box, and the outer box is either brown or white, depending on which one's in it. And it's just it's just a long rectangular box with just Seiko in the bottom right-hand corner. And then you lift out a, a wooden box, and you open it up, and it just says Seiko on it. And in there, it's the VFA. And it's like the top-of-the-line piece. Even the, the Astron box, the, the first gold, um, the first quartz watch, which is 450,000 yen, um, just came in this same really standard plain box um so i'd love to see what the imperial vfa came in maybe one day
1: one are of there, these are know, there other well. pieces which are on the same level as this imperial vfa in your mind like that also um very very you know like that's just an amazing story by the way like yeah you know, there's there's of, nothing of the pieces like that
2: well there's there's other pieces which are very very highly valued so for example the platinum first Grand Seiko the one that I mentioned earlier on when we were discussing this the steel all the all the, regu- all the, the normal uh, pretty much all of the normal Grand Seiko the first Grand Seiko I don't like saying Grand Seiko first it sounds stupid all of the normal examples of the first Grand Seikos came in this gold filled case um they get very interesting when you look at the detail of how the dial was done so whether it's print printed or carved mm. oh yeah and, and you know they're they're very very rare something like a print a printed logo of Grand Seiko first mm. Is just so so rare compared to you know the the much much more common one. I mean, I, I've seen less than a dozen in my entire li- in, in my entire life since I've been interested in vintage Grand Sacre, I've seen less than a dozen printed firsts, and only six of those in really good condition. Um, but the platinum first, so there's two known full sets of the platinum first. So we've got inner and outer boxes, swing tags. Certificate, etc. One of those is in the collection on the west coast of the States, um, with Eric. Um and um the second one um I acquired and is now in the collection of the the guy in the UK. That that as a set is ridiculously rare. A platinum first Grand Seiko is is very, very rare. Um and I, I know that there's it's the watch that the the people who aren't really interested in Grand Seiko at all but that's the watch that they want to have they, they want to have the Platinum because you know again it's the scarcity of it mm. um a...
1: and being the first right that's yeah why. Yeah, where yeah the whole thing starts yeah I can see why that's like yeah really desirable yeah
2: and then the, the Platinum is interesting because there's three different versions of
1: that in terms of how the dial was
2: done um so those you know platinums i think i've got notes of in terms of what i've seen around and in collections i think again maybe a dozen of those um and just just two two with certificates and boxes so that that's really really rare um and then there's the 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 first grand seiko has two different boxes um there's a very early box which is really really special um which is on the cover of one of the early in-house Seiko magazines um there's only one known full set example of that this has the regular gold goldfield reference in it um but there's only one one known full set example of that in existence um no prizes for guessing where that is um so that's that's another top top piece but it's top top because of the whole package the watch itself is just like any other carved dial. First, it's fact it has its papers, and 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 the, and the this this ridiculous early box. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, on the VFA's, the the watch that the Imperial VFA is is based on. I mean, it's the same case, it's the same movement. The dial's different, the case back's different, um, the crown's different. Um, that's the forty-five, eighty, seventy, ten. That's that's for me the grail. Grand Seiko that actually has Grand that actually says Grand Seiko on it. Um is the
1: 445
2: 7010 4580-7010 Um but then there's um I, I know this <laughs> when when I was a kid I was really into Rubik's cube um and I I actually was was on um the local radio in London on LBC on a saturday morning show demonstrating how to solve the rubik's cube which if you think about it it's a pretty stupid thing to do on radio um <laughs> uh, i know i know just the, i know just the audio is going out on this um but but th- th- this is a really cool one um so apologies that your listeners won't see this but this is another vfa um and this is a 6185 um, 8000 and this is a plate a silver palladium alloy case um with this most ridiculous the bracelet, bracelet. Is really cool. Yeah. yeah, the bracelet's really cool. Yeah, th- th- this this one, I think I can I can say this. I mean, he said it to me. Prime, uh, a very prominent Italian collector. Yeah, uh, the most prominent Italian uh, watch collector, not so not dealer. Don't think of dealers. Think of the most. Who's the guy who who maybe like might use a cheese knife to open up the back of his watches?
1: Um, and yeah. this is
2: the this is the one that he wants. He wants this watch. Um, but there's only been three of these in the last decade. So again, it's a VFA, but it's in a crazy, um, this this crazy case and, and done. And the, the the clasp. If you look at how the clasp is done, I mean, have you ever seen anything like that? It, it's like triple, triple articulated. Um, so so that that's a, you know, for, for me, I wouldn't part with this for six figures. What, what? Sorry, I wouldn't part for this for anything less than six figures. Um, and good luck finding another one that's the thing so you know there, there's there's there are some some top pieces that's right for
1: sure. so I heard a lot and it's kind of wet my appetite um certainly interested to go and read more but I, I'm always like thinking whether aesthetically it's my kind of taste um well, th- there's a lot of variety
2: in and I, I think one of the one of the challenges one of the challenges these days is that the modern brands focus is so much on a single watch from the vintage period which is the 44 grand sega the 44 gs um and you'll see it you, you go to the the, the website it will say hit 44 gs they always talk about it it's, th- it's all about the case design but the crazy thing is the modern case design on what they call the 44 gs isn't even the same as the vintage one yeah um and, but because of that focus and because of the focus of the modern era um they they don't uh you don't really hear about some of the more interesting you don't see some of the more interesting vintage pieces i i have covered i i've written articles that cover every single vintage grand seiko reference and reference variant that's ever been released i have a substack um i've written a series of articles based around the catalogues so I, you, you i scan you can see all the original seiko catalogues all of the vintage grand seiko's in there I I'm fairly confident saying that whatever your taste is as long as what you're in, as long as you you don't want complications because all of the vintage Grand Seiko's that only three hand watches some have date some have day date yeah and and some are some are just time only so there's no chronographs there's no divers um there's no tool watches whatsoever they're just all watches some are sporty than others some have bracelets most on straps um but there is a huge variety in the case design and case case material there's huge variety in dial design and dial colors you know if you want a green dial vintage Grand Seiko you can have a green dial vintage Grand Seiko um if you want a blue dial you can have a blue dial if you want a brown dial you can have a brown dial if you want textured you've got five different textures to choose from et cetera et cetera so if if you're prepared to put the work in and actually just you know spend spend some time maybe over the course of a few weekends just just reading what is out there i'm pretty convinced you'll find something you'll say that i really like and then the right. problem is that you cannot buy just one vintage grand
1: seiko it's not possible Well, i'd like to challenge that maybe i can <laughs> <laughs> famous last words but okay you mentioned something which is your Substack, so yeah. Like, let's, I'm pretty interested in reading more. I'll, I'll give you that. Like, I'm definitely interested to educate myself on Grand and some of these really rare, rare pieces. Yeah. Um, how do I access your sub Is it available to everybody? Yeah, it's available, it's available to everybody.
2: Um, and most of the content that I put on there, and certainly all the historical content, is all completely free. Um, I'm a big believer in, you know, just, just putting putting that that knowledge out there the the only thing that that is um I have I have two tiers I have a free membership and then I have a paid for membership which is only a dollar a week um and, and that gets you the Friday newsletter where I talk about the auctions that are currently going on in Japan that week and I make recommendations as to what might be worth you following and, and purchasing but also what you want to avoid because there's pro- there's problems with this watch it's a fake or it's a Frankenstein or whatever fortunately there's not too many of those um so that that you can find at the grandseikoguide.substack.com um and you'll find all the mag- all the the articles that I've written on the uh catalogs are there and and I'd say that's a pretty good good place to start because yes. you can go through the catalogs in order and, and you'll, you'll get a sense of the history of the brand because when, when you it was the catalogs really that that really opened everything up for me. And I I started to really understand the brand because you you might think, okay, here's a watch that was made in 1966. Here's another watch that was made in 1966, but that doesn't tell you about what the offer to the public was. You know, for that, you have to say what was in the catalogs. And it's like, ah, that watch that was made in 66, that wasn't launched for another year. Whereas this one has actually been in production for three years and it's just, you know, having its its last swan song in the catalogs. So you can really learn a lot, um, from looking at those articles and, look, and looking at what the offer was and so I, I say that that's a good a good place to start
1: okay. um
2: but it but it's quite a bit of quite a bit of effort to to take in i mean I've, i i don't know i've written hundreds of thousands of words on vintage grand seiko but at least those ones are structured structured a lot of the time it's not so, quite
1: i'm so going to look on CNU after this for that imperial vfa <laughs> Then use another like e-commerce platform. Probably like, you know, probably won't have it because it's based in yeah. China. But anyway, right. Um, well, that time has flown by, Gerald, like literally like it's been so, so enjoyable talking about uh, Grand Seiko. Um, I guess my last question of this main interview is what has been your best horological experience to date? Doesn't have to be with Grand Seiko.
2: It's not. Um, um, oh, a horological experience. You see that you use the word horological. Can I? Can I do two? Okay. So uh, neither of which are Grand Seiko. Um, the, the first one was really very special. Um, I mentioned, that I have a very, very good collector friend in Japan who has the most. You have a lot of friends.
1: We're not. <laughs> we're not
2: really. I don't make friends easy um <laughs> but but he, he no this this particular gentleman um he he has he, he has a watch shop um and i think he may actually be a second generation so i think his father owned the watch shop before him he's he's in his early i think he's in his early 60s uh he's just he's, he doesn't speak a word of english but he he's just a wonderful wonderful gentleman and i it's always my first port, port of call i went back to japan for the first time since since covid um in October and the first place I go I get on the train from Tokyo and I go and see him um anyway three years ago I went to visit him and he he always takes me up into the room above the shop and he brings boxes in and he opens the boxes out and he starts showing me some watches and and he he has some of the most mind-blowing quality pieces you could you can imagine um just, just unreal but he's also he also has the, the most ridiculously diverse collection of watches. I mean, he he must have tens of thousands of watches. This guy, yeah. So Grand Seiko is just a tiny little bit for him. Um, but he's shown me this watches, and he shows me um, the first what's recognised as the first Seiko dive watch, which is commonly called the sixty-two mass because that's what it was in the catalogue. This is the reference on the back is six two one seven. I think it's sixty one seven eight thousand or eight thousand and one. I've always wanted one of these. But, but I'd never actually bought one because um, it's, it's low priority, but I thought, no, one day I'll get one of these. Anyway, so he hands me this 62 mass and it's in fabulous, fabulous condition. And I turn it over and I look at the case serial number. So every Seiko pretty much from 63 onwards will have the case serial number on the back. Um, and the first two digits tell you the year and then the month that it was manufactured. Yeah. Now, also, you've only got one digit for the year, so you have to know that it's sixties, not seventies, or eighties, or nineties, whatever. This continues today. You can look at, you can find out the production date of your modern Grand Seiko by Seiko by turning it over and looking at the first two digits of the serial number. And I look at the first two digits of this serial number, and it's seven two, right? So seven, 1967, The watch that originally came out in sixty five, but so nineteen seventy. Uh, sorry, nineteen sixty seven, and the two for February. February 1967. Now, have a guess who was born in February 1967. Moi. But then I carry on reading the serial number, and the next two digits are 015. And I was born on 15th of February 1967. Now, the 015 doesn't mean it was the 15th, but it's like, this is ridiculous. This is a bir- yeah. And then there's, there's one more digit after that.
1: You're screwed.
2: This is a birth year, birth month watch right yeah that also in the serial number is basically saying my birthday and I'm looking at this thing and I have there's there's another Japanese collector with me who's who's doing the translations and I look at him and I know he's got a dozen of these yeah you know, okay he doesn't have just one of anything he, he's he got like loads of even the rarest you know really rare great Seikos you know he'll have like 10 of them laid out it's unbelievable but he never sells anything he'll trade and he he trades there's a group of Japanese collectors who get together and they trade between themselves um and I say to the Japanese to to the collector I said please explain to um this gentleman um if he ever wants to sell this watch or if there's anything that he's interested in that maybe I can find to trade with him please let him know that I would very much like to have it and like the reaction is like why, because I've never said that to him about any watch. And he's had watches which are way more desirable than this one. And um, I said, it's my birth month. And I got my, I had my passport on me. And I said, look at my birthday. I said, look at the serial number on the watch. And, then, oh. and he explained it to Kenji, Kenji Kenji's the, the guy's name. He goes, okay. Okay, I'll, I'll let you know. I saw him again at a watch fair in Tokyo the following week two days before I was due to fly back. This is back in
1: 2019,
2: I think. He said, gerald son and he presents me the watch. I'm going, really? You're selling this to me? You're willing to sell it to me? I said, how much would you like for it? He says, no, it's a gift. So he gave me this watch. Now, okay, what's it worth? I don't know, four or $5,000, something like that, maybe. Um, and you know, to him, it's one watch out of 10000 But But that that is a... As a touching moment um is just trumps everything. Mm. Even even when I've found, you know, a really, really top quality piece, a rare piece, which is like, oh, I can make some money sending this, flipping. It's like that watch goes to my grave on my wrist, um, or the incinerator or whatever happens. I mean that that that'll be the last watch that is with me. Um, so that's very, very special. But you said horological moment. moment, um, I was very lucky to be able to acquire a few years ago uh, an example of one of the Seiko competition movements that was competing at the Nurse uh, chronometry trials in 1967. And uh, I bought it from Yahoo Auctions. The serial number wasn't clear, but I thought it looks like it might be 052561. Um, And when I got it, and I'm opening it I think I think I think I put a video on YouTube of me actually live opening it I can't remember a live unboxing and sure enough it is it's, it's this watch and this watch came um 7th in the 1967 No Shattel trials um and it's the the third highest performing Seiko watch ever submitted to the No Shattel trials I mean it should be in a museum um and um i took it back to nurse when i went to basel world a few years ago i took it to no and it's in this little wooden box and i took a few photographs of the observatory in the background um Mm -hmm. so that that was that was that's a that's a pretty special piece and and just nice to to take that watch back to switzerland and you know show it to nurse and say you know we beat you the japanese beat you back then (laughs) um so the, yeah that's that's probably the, the 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 second second uh the second horological one
1: wow. but the dive
2: watch trump trump's everything that was that was just remar- a remarkable day absolutely remarkable
1: yeah i bet you were quite emotional like receiving that i i was if you
2: look closely if i lean in you'll see that there's actually tears running in my eye now and i'm i'm not i'm not joking it, it is um, i'm not not a particularly emotional person and um but but yeah, that that was that was a very very special moment from a from a really really special guy. Um, so I, I I go and see him and I, I try to repay him for that. I mean I've I've given him a bunch of um, Japanese in-house magazines that it was like the only copies known in existence There's like two hundred of them, and I took them in a big case and said, Kenji, these are for you. And he goes, oh, how much? I said, no no no, it's a gift, it's a gift for you. So we got a thing now where we we try to outdo each other. I think in terms of gifts that we. <laughs> we do um, yeah that was that was
1: that was was a fantastic story so much thank you so much for sharing that it's really wonderful when we hear stuff like that um okay well that finishes off the main interview uh we now go on to the reverso round quickly and have you ever have you thought of a question for um me and lung um
2: well I i guess yeah okay so what i'm interested in is you do you do you feel that you you're now on a path where you can at least learn more about grand seiko you may not end up getting one in t- particularly around the vintage pieces but but as as you're do, do you feel your interest is being peaked a little now and that you have some knowledge that you can now go out and apply and um and maybe 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 you'll find something of interest
1: okay i can go first on this one yeah. um so I- I've actually read up on the FA, actually. And I've read up on like the history and all this kind of stuff. And there are always times when I'm reading it, my interest is peaked. Yeah. But unfortunately, I always find it it never, it's never like an everlasting kind of interest. Um, and part of that is because I look at some of those early uh Grand Seiko's and I don't find them, I, it's the case shape. I don't find them aesthetically pleasing. Like, they're not for me. But then I've never seen, like, from what you're saying, there's so many, right, that yeah. and I haven't been exposed to the right um, product offering because the literature isn't, like, wholly available. And I found that a lot of the literature does kind of regurgitate itself because there isn't yeah. a lot. So everybody's, like, talking about the same stuff and the yeah. same watches. <laughs> and i looked at the same watches over and over again and it's like nah i still can't like like it Uh, i need a a specific product offering for me to like i i need like i need the imperial vfa in my life that's what i need right (laughs) i need that kind of watch to get me to get me into it to maybe find the actual watch that i want i mean if i get the imperial great but i mean it Sometimes it's like the imperial F A. The story alone is enough to sell me that watch, right? And then yeah. you factor in the rarity of it, and then the journey of finding it. That that's really addictive for me. But then I'm hearing about like VFA and being the top, and you know, it. I, I think that's a very interesting kind of thing. But I need to find one that I actually, yeah, personally, aesthetically appreciate. Ooh.
2: It it may be that you don't find that in the VFA because because the VFAs are actually they're all pretty
1: understated watches.
2: Um, Again, okay, I mean the the, the... Do, I look,
1: do I not look very understated? The, <laughs> do I not look very understated? No, but 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 your <sighs> you see if if you if you look at the VFAs,
2: I guess what am I trying to say? If you look at the VFAs, um, they are all relatively plain watches that okay. there's nothing that's okay there's the nothing
1: way.
2: yeah okay but, but you're saying you know you're, you're having trouble finding something where you you appreciate the case shape yeah now all the vfas they're all they're all pretty standard watch case shapes yeah but if you were to look at some of the other grand Seiko's and and I, I could reel off a whole bunch of different serial numbers uh, sorry reference numbers like six one four five eight eighty thirty. Yeah? yeah you do a quick google for a 61458030 and you look at it, you think that looks nothing like a Grand Seiko. Yeah.
1: All right, let me just but, do that now. What's it called? Six, don't be so oh, 6145.
2: Six. Six, six, yeah. Eight zero three zero. And you go onto images and my photographs will undoubtedly come come to the top, I'm sure. Now you see if you sh- if you took the branding off that watch and you showed it to somebody and all that person had been exposed to was the modern story, the modern marketing of Grand Seiko and all this talk about the Grand Seiko, um, you know the the, the design, mm. and then you look at that and you think, well, that's a completely different catch of fish, yeah. And that's just one example of where, mm. okay, maybe if you want something a little bit different, there there are Grand Seikos out there. If you, if you want a square case shape, if you want a oval case shape, if you want a turtle case shape, you know that if you want a very sharp angular case shape. Um, that's completely different from from the 44 that everyone always refer refers back to uh, they're out there <laughs> but as you say people don't really talk about them that much um but that's really that nice, watch... actually
1: this actually yeah. really nice
2: and that's has that got that hammer tone stuff on it yeah it's yeah, so a that's hand hammered that's hand hammered case yeah. the, the nice. pressed, nice. but the dial is pressed but the 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 case is ham hammered it's a 18 karat gold case um a lot of people are after that watch um and you know the the value of those is is shooting up i i have i have i was very fortunate i have a completely mint new stock example of that that's
1: not going anywhere um but except in my collection okay
2: well yeah we'll,
1: <laughs> we'll see
2: um all right but again that uh, that watch in good condition maybe you'll see one a year come to market if that right um so i i absolutely i'm trying to i don't want to come across as i'm trying to sell this i'm not trying to i'm not trying to sell anybody on vintage grand seiko what i want to do is
1: just open people's eyes and say there's no, a lot you lot have of you, if, 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 you yeah. have achieved that with me yeah. at least um okay that's my answer you have achieved that now it's long one's turn
0: so i'm gosh okay so two parts of this first part is you have achieved the fact like you can make me want to go and read more about this, but I think it's going to take a really long time. And you're right. I think if I went through the catalog, Mm. it actually might not be the VFA because I have seen VFAs in real life and I really love yellow gold. And this piece was in yellow gold. And I just Oh, it's, it's very classy. It's well-made and all these things, right? You go on and on about it. But then I just kept thinking like, why can't you just, wanted like so badly because I'll, I'll tell you like the ellipse for a long time was my like was a piece i really wanted and yeah. if you were to ask me now list down why you will you would really want one over say a standard rolex i couldn't really tell you other than i could just say something vague like you you know i'm going through a phase i want something un- uh, understated classy but that doesn't really say anything because a lot of watches fit that so i'm just trying. i'm still trying to figure it out like what is it about seiko grand seiko and japanese watches in general that i just can't get over and it's kind of like cars i do this game when i walk through the car park and i'll think to myself well that's a well-made car that's a well-made car but what is it about japanese brands that i just find like this it's like not sexy there's something about it that i'm just like it's so practical it's so like Um, logical and like you know equations and perfectly made that i just find it a bit like hard to feel something
1: the romantic side
0: yeah and i'm not sure what it is and i just i really want to know
2: yeah
1: i i i think um
2: i think i think again i i think if you there is such, so much more variety in the the look of the vintage pieces compared to the modern pieces. And don't get me wrong, I think the yeah. modern range is absolutely fantastic. I've, I've got several modern Grand Seikos, you know, starting from 1988. I've got a complete set of the first four that came out and I've got other ones since then. And I, I bought two modern Grand Seikos when I was in Japan recently. Mm-hmm. So I've got nothing against the modern ones. But there, there is a lot more variety in terms of the, the aesthetics and the looks. Um actually I have a question. Do you prefer watches on bracelets or straps?
0: Definitely straps for me.
2: Definitely straps. Okay. Yeah. That that's good because there's very few. Yeah. There, there's actually not many vintage grand seikos on bracelets, but there are, you know, there are 18 karat gold cased watches on 18 karat yeah. gold bracelets. So you know, if, if that's the the look that anyone looking for, that's achievable as well. But, I, yeah, all, all I can say is, you know, you, you may not find a single one. You know, there, there is a very Japanese aesthetic to these. And I don't ask me to define what a Japanese aesthetic is. I have no idea. But as, as you say, you look and you think, yeah, that's Japanese. Yeah. Um, I, I happen to find that 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 a lot of it, especially when it becomes that, that very minimalist look, and it's it's just very pure. It's almost like everything extraneous has been taken away. You couldn't take a single more single thing more off the watch and then it is it's just no longer a watch. Um, and um, if if that's not an aesthetic that is ever going to appeal, then you know very potentially none of these will. But just just from from my side view, because there is so much variety. And you know, after this, I can I can just drop you a yeah. few photos. Say, so look, th- this is the variety of what a vintage Grand Seiko can look like. Um, and it may be that no, none of them really grab me. And if it doesn't grab you, mm-hmm. then. I mean Grand Seiko never didn't Grand Seiko didn't grab me vintage Grand Seiko didn't grab me right from the very start it was only when I started to understand the history of the brand and where each watch sat in that history that that's when I really started to get interested in it because I because I I got the story of the brand yeah. it's not just about a single yeah. watch yeah. and it's like okay that watch belongs here this is what came before it. This is what what came after it. That's why it was only around for one year or two years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you, when you have that perspective, it's like okay, then an interest, then an individual watch can become interesting for once you understand its place in the story. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll I'll happily share share some yeah, images, you. and you know, yeah. if the reaction is like, no, it's all very much too Japanese. It's like not a problem with that at all.
1: <laughs> right. Well. Yeah, that's great. So we now move on to the pump push around. Like, oh, this has been pretty good. Um, anyway, so about nine questions here, which are just quick and non- kind of watch related. But actually, the first one is watch related. <laughs> if Patek is Rolls Royce, what would you say Grand Seiko is? I, honestly, I did not know if you were going to talk about cars like long. Well,
2: answer so is Patek Rolls Royce.
1: No, um, I'm saying it. What if it is? If it is.
2: Well, it's yeah. oh, God, such a cliche, isn't it? You, you, you're going to say Lexus. yeah. Anyone's oh. going to say Lexus. Oh,
1: okay. That's what you'd yeah, say. Well,
2: Seiko, Seiko is Toyota and oh, yeah. brand Seiko is is Lexus. Um, you know, that, that's where both brands were positioned right from the very start to the market. It's like, you know, this is, yeah. we can't just call these Seikos because they're more than Seikos. There's the, the, obviously the price differential is huge. You know, it's like 25,000 yen as opposed to 8,000 yen or whatever the you know the cheaper ones cost. Um, but yeah, it's cliched, but I don't think there's another answer other than saying Lexus.
1: Okay. Next question. Where is the best place to live in the world, in your opinion?
2: Well, I've not lived everywhere. So yeah. I can only answer it from places that I've lived or visited. Yeah. Um, I'd like to say Japan, but I can't say Japan because I could never live with my wife in Japan because we 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 like space. Mm. Um, there's only the two of us and our two cats, mm. um, but we need space because I do photography and videography as a as a hobby. So I need a studio for that. You know, the cats need their space. We need, my my wife loves cooking. She loves big kitchens. She loves entertaining, et cetera, et cetera. And the number of times I've looked at moving to Japan and just can't do it because you can't find anything over a thousand square feet. Certainly not within, or maybe 1,200, but certainly not that's remotely affordable or remotely accessible, which is a real shame. If, I think if I got into this, you know, I was into Nintendo when I was, when I was a kid, so there's there's always a Japanese thread there. Um, I think maybe if I, if I, as a kid, if I thought about going, to, going and living elsewhere, then Japan would have been a great one as a, as a single guy. I don't mean a kid, I mean a, a single guy um so i have to be practical um and there's absolutely no question in my mind that the greatest place to live in the world is
1: thailand
0: <laughs> yeah, <Very>
1: <laughs> right number three give a book recommendation <laughs>
2: oh okay um There is a book that I read when I was younger. I think it came out in the late 70s and I must have read it in the early 80s. Um, And I don't know whether anybody even knows about this book anymore. Maybe it's just, you know, not something that people pay attention to. The book is called Girdle Escher An Eternal Golden Braid. And the author is Douglas Hofstadter, H-O-F-S-T-A-D-T-E-R. And uh, for, for me reading it as a, you know sort of an early teenager. It, it was just just it's a phenomenally structured book and written book. It's it's not a um, as, as you can probably tell from the title, it, it's not fiction. Um it's it's a book that explores uh how how we think. It's a book that explores um programming. You know, it's talking about computer programming back in like the you know the late the late 70s. Um Every chapter is introduced by a little play between a tortoise and a hare. I mean, it's sounding ridiculous, I'm sure. If you don't know this book, it, I, I can't describe it particularly well. Um, but it's uh, it, it's the most fascinating book I've ever read in my life. And, and it's a bit of a slog. It, certainly, it was certainly a slog for a 14-year-old, as I was at the time, I think. Um, and interestingly, my sister, who did speech sciences at university, it was a third-year text for her course, um, so she was quite surprised <laughs> when, in a third year at university, that the book that I was reading when I was fourteen um, was was like you know a, a considered book. Um, if you if you like if you like thinking, you like exploring you know how we think and how we see the world, and you know whether you look at things holistically or reductionism or you know some sort of mixture of the two, um, and you like wordplay and word games and puzzles um it's a phenomenal book it's a phenomenal book um so so clever i can't recommend it highly enough but it's not for everybody okay,
1: okay. thank you right number, number four when was the last time you ate mcdonald's well
2: you know what's really funny here on ko samui um yeah. they, there is a mcdonald's there's a couple of them i think um but they shut down in covid and the one closest to us, which is about, I guess, six kilometers away, only reopened two months ago. And, um, are you asking this question? Cause you, you can see how fat I am. You are, aren't you? Um, I, the last time, <laughs> but I've never been there. So I've not been to the one in on Kosumui. Um, but honestly, the last time I ate McDonald's was in Japan. I have a thing about McDonald's milkshakes. I think they're absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And, uh, there are many places now in the world where for some reason you can't you can't have them they're not in the middle east because i think there's some some um ingredient from pigs in them yeah so you can't have them in the middle east um but when i'm in japan um i know it's it's horrendous when you think of the, the food opportunities you got there i always go to mcdonald's at least once or three times a week <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. and i'll order I'll, I'll order the the big mac meal Oh, yeah. and a chocolate milkshake on the side as well as the coke. okay
1: now we ask because we love mcdonald's yeah. right okay
2: and well, mcdonald's uh, is great when you're young and your metabolism is good yeah you yeah. can use as much junk as you want right but when you get to my age and you're in your 50s um it's not good you don't shed it as as easily
1: well i i, I would say i'm not a big mac guy anymore like I think a Big Mac's a bit of a con, to be honest. Like playing on its like branding for many, many years. I don't think the big I almost think the Big Mac, either I've grown a lot bigger and the Big Mac looks a lot smaller. Think... Do you know what I mean? I no, don't think, think it... the I don't think the product offering is exactly the same as it was when I was a kid. You know, I just don't think it is. Uh... I think you're better off getting like, you know, a quarter pounder or a double cheeseburger and two of them instead. You know. Well, I, I
2: I don't know whether they've changed size. I've got a sneaky suspicion the bun size has gone down. Um, yeah, but, but what's happened easy. is is the bigger meal has has is become more of a thing. So back when McDonald's and oh god, when I was at primary school, I actually wrote an essay on visiting the first McDonald's that opened up in the UK in London, and, um, and when I handed in the essay, said. What you consider a day out to go to McDonald's, and it's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, I'm nine years old. It's like it's a big thing. First time I've been to McDonald's. Um, obviously, back then, you, you know, you're, you're not so big, so everything looks enormous. But, but yeah, I mean, you can you can get double quarter pound of your cheeses now. You know, there's far more in there. Like you, you say that the double cheeseburgers. Some places you can't even get the regular cheeseburger because they force you. I'm coming across like a McDonald's expert, aren't I? Um, they force you to get the the double one.
1: Um, Don't worry, Long Long is a McDonald's, expert, like, expert. professor, not an expert, a uh, professor, yeah. What
2: well, about Wendy's?
1: Have you ever been to Wendy's? Do you know yeah. Wendy's?
0: Yeah.
2: So do you know Wendy's do the three-quarter pounder?
0: Yeah. So they, Wendy's
2: Wend- Wend- have, have the square, they have the square burger patties, and they they, they do, or th- well, they used to when mm. I was a kid, they do th- three of those. So there's three-quarters of a pound of meat in a burger. Oh, man.
0: It just never. No. And <laughs> like KFC came in with no buns, and it just like they just keep trying to top it.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I feel like McDonald's now. But okay. <laughs> um, number five. Do you have a guilty pleasure? What that we can talk about. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, children, <laughs> All right, let's go on to the next one. No, 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 no. Sorry.
2: Um. Well, I. I, I guess I guess it's my the the photography, and and now I'm really getting into video because I like to see watches move. I think that's my guilty pleasure. i i I bought a I spent years looking for something that could actually I could mount a watch to, and then it could move the watch around to present different angles of the watch to the camera. Everybody thinks you mount the camera on something and move the camera. It's like, well, no, the watch is so tiny, it's far better to move the watch and keep the camera stationary. So I, I after many many years of searching for something and looking at reviews of robots you know these robot arms which can move stuff around i finally stumbled across this uh robot that's made by a company called macademic in canada um and it's actually an industrial robot. it's a proper industrial robot it's not like an educational toy um and i get so much pleasure out of programming that thing and spinning watches around you wouldn't believe and that cost twenty thousand dollars that robot Wow. I, so if that's on a guilty pleasure that i spent twenty thousand yeah. dollars just on the thing to move a watch about to film i don't know what is um but i, I get enormous amount of pleasure out of that i love wow. i love gadgets i love gadgets and that is the ultimate gadget
1: i can understand like i was i was uh late night watching youtube and i got recommended this video of a man that um as is living takes videos for um f&b companies right so it was showing like the yeah. perfect burger drop, you know that burger yeah. drop, that yeah, 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 and how he does it, and then you got Amazing. this guy that touches up everything, you know, like cooks it, and then he asked, and then you know, like he's talking about how he's on a limited time frame because the lettuce, you know, will will, will yeah. wilt and all this kind of stuff, right? It it was so good, so good. Yeah. <laughs> like, that that yeah. food,
2: that food, video, the the videography that people do for food is is just mind blowing. Big and, money, massive yeah. money in that. Yeah. When you see the behind the scenes of how they do it and, you know, the often, they, often they, they'll use this um, industrial robot called a Bolt, um, from a company out of the US, uh, Mark Roberts Motion Control. And that Bolt is like a massive thing that you actually attach the camera to and it can move really, really fast. So it can spin around. It can do like the bullet time thing from the Matrix because it moves the camera so fast while the thing's dropping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Frame rate. Yeah, exactly. You know, that that robot costs a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Um, so yeah that's really serious serious top high-end stuff when they do that but the the, the results are incredible absolutely yeah. amazing
1: right next one the last watch photo on your phone oh
2: that's a great one i have to look right there's lots of my cats oh it's of a vfa i was showing a um it's are you you want to see it or
1: no just wanted to know I,
2: like that, because when I mount it on the robot, and, because I did a, I did a, um, again, sorry, listeners, I did a video of the watch moving it around so we could see see the whole watch in the case, but obviously the, the watch is attached to the robot, so you can't see the case back. So I had to take a photograph of the case back to share with him. So that's the last watch photograph okay. on uh, the it's a It's a Grand Seiko 61858010 VFA.
1: Um, what will we always find in your fridge?
2: We have two fridges. We have one for food and one for drink. In the drink, you in the drink one you will always find Coke Light and Singer Beer. Okay. And you want to have the food one as well? Yeah, the food. No the- My wife looks after that one. I have no idea. All
1: right. Okay, the last question now. The last person you met who left a lasting impression on you.
2: Hmm. I don't meet a lot of people. And obviously, I can't say you. Um, hmm. Left a lasting impression. I, I have to go back quite some way, actually, for that. Um, I and mean, this, this can be somebody... What you're talking about is the person I met for the first time who made a lasting impression, yeah? Not As necessarily. To I, might have known, I might have known someone for 20 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah no, one. it could be, it it could be either. Count, it could be either. I, I think on... Um, in, in terms of who, who have I met for the first time most recently who made a last impression? Sorry, I'm terribly analytical, aren't I? Um, I think that would actually be a, a, a watch collector in Bangkok. I've known him for a few years, um, called Andy, who who's a, he's actually been featured on Hidinki. He, ha- he has the most astonishing collection of aviation watches, um, and he, he's a remarkable guy, and he has a remarkable watch collection. Um and although I first met him several years ago, I've not met anybody. Um I think partly because of you know COVID was you know, we were all shut at home, we couldn't fly internationally for a couple of years. Um yeah, he was he, he was and Andy, he was probably the, the the guy who who made a lasting impression. In in terms of people that I see. Sorry, was this rot related or just in general? I can't remember. No, sorry. Just, no, not general. Yeah. well in terms of obviously the person who I who I see every day who's made a lasting impression on me would be my wife okay
1: so cliched but I'll take it <laughs> yeah she might listen to this so I've got to say it yeah. yeah exactly yeah knew that was coming all right okay okay well that ends the podcast had a lot of fun actually I think we could have kept going for ages talking about Grand Seiko maybe we'll get you on another time and like after we've done some research like I've got some questions to ask you yeah no I'd love to yeah
2: and I I think as you know we've we sort of discussed all along that one of the challenges with Grand Seiko and it's not as much of a challenge now is actually finding out and learning about the the brand that the mod the modern brand are doing better now than they have done in the past in terms of um you know putting out historical art articles on the historical watches and they don't always get it right but um they're they're, they're doing well but but in terms of actually having having a good overview I mean the, the the you know I can blow my own trumpet but that the information is out there now you know nobody is starting from where I was seven years ago from from a from you know from a blank sheet and not knowing anything um and yeah please please do I, I'm happy to send you you know photographs of a selection of watches um just so that you can see what the variety was um and then yeah maybe maybe have some thoughts and then uh, I'd be more than happy to come back and, and chat once you've had a bit of a dig.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Um, That ends the podcast for today. So thank you all for listening. And you can catch us at The Waiting List Podcast um, on Instagram. And um, yeah, we'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers, everyone.
0: As always, thank you for listening to The Waiting List Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if
1: you have any questions, comments, or feedback feel free to reach out to us at the waiting list podcast on instagram or via our private accounts we'll see you on the next one bye